Today's scripture is from 2 Samuel 6, 1 through 19. Please stand for the reading of God's word. David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and all his men set out from Bala of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ohio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ohio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with songs and with harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day that place is called Perizuzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now, King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. David was wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he'd finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women, and all the people went to their homes. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Peace be with you. It's good to see you this morning. Before we jump into this text, I wanted to make a quick announcement, a reminder that our annual women's conference is this upcoming Saturday. Registration's at 8.30. It goes from 9 till 3.30. It costs 30 bucks. Uh, and right now we have about 75 women signed up. And our hope and our prayer is that we'd see over 100 women come out to that. And so we want to encourage you, want to remind you and encourage you. You can sign up online, get more information at the information table. That's why it's called that. And, uh, and I also want to call husbands, like... This is a chance to serve your wives. Uh, this is a chance, especially if you have little kids in the house, 
This is a chance for you to watch the kids uh, and give your wife a chance to connect with other women in the church, to grow in understanding of the word. And let's be honest, you're probably just gonna watch football anyway, so just have the kids with you while you're watching football. So that being said, uh, we turn to 2 Samuel 6, and the text we're looking at today is a strange one. Uh, it's a head scratcher. I was talking with people this week, what are you preaching on? I told them, and they said, why? <laughs> I said, because it's there. Um, this text was, I read this when I was 15 or 16, new, new to the faith, and was just utterly confused and confounded by it. And I remember thinking, someday I hope I can understand this better than I did in that moment. Because on the surface, it's just, it's bizarre. With Uzzah and then David, and, uh, on the surface, it's confusing. But I would say, if you get to the heart of this text, you really get to the heart of what the Bible is all about. And this text, I think, it has the power to unlock a joy in your life that you are desperately longing for, whether you can name it or not. Uh, we see a glimpse of that joy in David near the very end. But it's hard, and you got to do some work to get there. And so we're going to do that work, and we're going to look at this passage under three headings. We're going to first look at David's desire for the ark. Second, we're going to look at his despair over the ark. And then we're going to finish up by talking about his dance and what led him to dance. But we're going to begin by talking about his desire because chapter six begins with David commissioning 30,000 men to bring the ark of God to Jerusalem. And if you're going to understand this text, you got to know something about the ark of the covenant. And the ark of the covenant, it was a wooden chest. Essentially, it was a box that was overlaid with gold. It was fairly ornate. It was four feet long, about two and a half feet wide and two and a half feet high. There's a uh, artist rendition of it. It had these rings on the side that had poles that went through them so that the Levites, these were priests who had devoted their lives to God, they could carry the ark when it was being transported. On the top, you'll see there is a gold slab called the mercy seat. And then on both ends, there were two angels with their wings outstretched towards one another over the mercy seat. And, you know, in one sense, this, the ark of the covenant, it was a piece of furniture but it was an incredibly important piece of furniture to the Israelites. It was an incredibly important part of their history and also their worship. And 20 years earlier, 20 years before this, this account takes place, the Israelites, they were, they were wandering from God. They were far from God and they got into a battle because they're in way over their heads. And they tried to use the ark essentially as a good luck charm in battle. The Philistines thoroughly destroyed them and then they captured the ark. And the Philistines at first were really happy. We've got this thing that's so important to the Israelites. Well, it was only with them for a few days before people started developing tumors and other people started dying. And the Philistines said, you know what? We don't want this thing. And so they, they put it on a cart and shipped it back to the Israelites with the guilt offering. We didn't mean to get into all of this with you. We didn't mean to take this thing. And so they sent it back. Saul, this is right around the time that Saul becomes king. And so this incredibly important thing shows up, but Saul doesn't really have a, a harder desire for it. And so Saul says, you know, you can just put it in someone's basement, essentially. And so for 20 years, the ark has been gathering dust in someone's basement in the middle of nowhere. And now David is king and he's just become king. Saul's died, David's become king, and he wants the ark 
to be brought to Jerusalem, which was the capital city that he just established. And the question is why? Well, in one sense, David's beginning his reign as king, and he wants it to be clear to everyone that he actually serves the ultimate king, Yahweh, and that bringing the ark there, it grounds the people in their story and their worship, and he wants to make sure that their, their kingdom is built and founded and established on the Lord, but it's, it's more than that for David. There's more going on here. Throughout the Old Testament, whenever someone would draw near to God, when they, whenever they would come before the face of God, there was always some kind of physical manifestation of God's presence. And so Moses is probably the most famous. When he encounters God, he encounters God in a burning bush. Abraham, when he encounters God, he encounters God in a smoldering pot and a burning torch. Job, when he encounters God, he encounters him in a whirlwind, a hurricane of sorts. Jacob, he encounters God as this mysterious wrestler in the dark. Whenever people in the Old Testament would encounter God face to face, whenever they would come into his presence, there was always some kind of physical manifestation of his presence. There was something visible and tangible. But with the ark, the ark, it's the only object throughout the Old Testament that God routinely established and attached his presence to. So the burning bush was a one-time deal. The, the smoldering pot, the mysterious wrestler, those were all one-time deals. But, but the ark, God routinely attached his presence to it. And in the book of Exodus, God gave these instructions for the ark. And he said, the ark's gonna go in the back room, essentially, of the tabernacle, the most important place called the Holy of Holies. And no one was really allowed in there except for the great high priest once a year. But there was one exception, and that exception was Moses. Moses was allowed to go in. He was allowed to go before the ark. And we're told in the book of Exodus that Moses, when he would go there, he would encounter God. He'd make a sacrifice, and then he'd encounter the presence of God. And we're told that he would actually encounter the glory, the, the Shekinah glory of God. And glory is such a hard thing to communicate because it's real and tangible, but it's also transcendent. Um, when we talk about the glory of God's presence, we're talking about the full weight and the gravity of God's brilliance and his beauty and his majesty and his glory, his the fullness of who God is that's, that's utterly overwhelming. Um, Moses would encounter it, and this is what David's actually after. The reason David wants the ark brought to Jerusalem, it's not just because he wants to establish a religious nation. It's because he wants to encounter the presence of God, the fullness of God. Of course, God's always present. He's ever present. And David had a general sense of the presence of God in his life, but a general sense wasn't enough. Like he wanted to encounter God's glory and his real presence, his, his actual presence that, that goes beyond just, yes, God is with us. And the reason why is because David has just become king. And David has spent at least 10 years, maybe 15 years, watching what a bad king can do to people and how he can terrorize a nation, terrorize people's lives, and throw everything into shambles. So David has an idea of the pressures that are coming, the conflicts, the drama, the opposition. And I think David knows the only way he's going to make it as king in this season is if he's able to tap in to the presence of God, 
to a, a deeper understanding and awareness of God, a deeper connection with God. It's the only way he's going to survive. And I think a lot of you are here today because you're similar to David. I know a lot of people, that's why they come to church. There's, a, there's a, a new season or a new opportunity in life. Maybe you get a new job. Maybe you move. Maybe you get married. Maybe you get remarried. Maybe you have kids or maybe your kids move out. Something changes and you look at your life and you can say, what got me here is not going to get me to where I want to be. What got me here is not going to sustain me through the next 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, which on this earth are almost always going to be hard. You say, I need something. I need something greater than myself. I need a deeper understanding of God, a deeper awareness of God. I need the presence of God in my life. That's what David's after. And presence of God's kind of a hard thing to define. What does the presence of God look like in our life? I would put it like this. It's one thing to believe in God. It's another thing to know God. It's one thing to believe. It's another thing to know. Belief is intellectual and it tends to be abstract and it's not bad. It's just not enough. Knowing, it's experiential and it's real. And what David's saying here is, I need more than just belief that God is good. I need to experience it. I need to have more than just a belief that God is present. I need to experience it. I need it to be the anchor for my life. I need to be ballast for me, to sustain me through what's coming. And I think this desire he has, it's a desire that we should, we should all have and we should long for, that we must never settle for just intellectual understandings of God. You know, so often in the church, I see people who say they believe that God loves them, but they are desperately and radically insecure. Just think about that for a minute. The Lord and creator of the universe says, I love you. You have my favor. And yet we're terrified of what other people think of us. We're terrified when other people snub us or insult us or treat us wrong. I see people who say that they believe that God's spirit is within us, that his power indwells us, but they're so timid. They don't do anything out of faith. They don't take any risks for God. They just cower in fear. I see people all the time in the church who say, I believe God is all powerful and yet they can't sleep at night. Like, what is that? It's knowledge of propositional truths without the actual experience of God's presence. Propositional truths are going to get you so far, but if you don't experience his presence, you're not going to make it. We're not going to make it. And David knows he's not going to make it. And so he says, I need the ark. I need the ballast. I need the glory to press into my life. Psalm 27, you can read about this desire of David over and over and over again in the Psalm. Psalm 27 is really clear. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek that I may dwell, him, dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. You know, I was younger in my faith. I thought that was just a really fluffy passage, but I get it a little bit more now. <laughs> the only way I'm going to make it, the only way is if I'm going to be able to gaze upon the beauty and the glory of God. If I'm going to have that relationship, that's the only thing that's going to sustain me. It's his desire, and it's a good desire. But unfortunately, that desire quickly leads to despair. So this is the second point, because 
David sends these 30,000 men to bring the ark to Jerusalem. And you're reading the passage, and, you know, for the first few verses, everything seems awesome, right? They got the brand new cart. They commission these two guys, Uzzah and Ohio, and they say, hey, you're going to guide because it's an ox cart, and so you're going to walk alongside it. We're going to bring it back. They break out the instruments. There's music. There's singing. There's dancing, crazy dancing. I mean, people are going nuts. It's like electric. It's a party parade. Everyone's excited. And then they get to the threshing floor of Nacon. And in the Bible, anytime you see people coming to a threshing floor, it's not typically a good thing. As they get near the threshing floor, the oxen stumble, the ark begins to slip, and this guy, Uzzah, reaches out his hand to steady the ark because he doesn't want it to fall into the soil and get defiled. And then he dies immediately. And just in case people might think, well, maybe he died because the ark crushed him or something like that. The narrator very clearly tells us in verse seven, the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark. In this text, it is that verse has bothered and perplexed people throughout the ages because it seems like This guy, Uzzah, makes one little mistake, born out of good intentions, and bam, God's like, you're gone. You're dead. And it's verses like these, and there's not a ton, but there are some. It's verses like these that people look at and they say, I don't want to believe in a God like that. A God who, guy makes one little mistake and God's straight. I don't want to believe in a God who would be that capricious, that, that temperamental, that trivial. And what I would say is this text teaches something exactly the opposite of God being temperamental temperamental or trivial. I mean, this text actually shows us that God is not trivial and that when we approach him, we must not come to him in a trivial manner. When God discloses who he is to people, one of the things he says over and over again in the Old Testament is, I am the Lord, slow to anger. Slow to anger, slow to anger. This means God doesn't have a short fuse. I mean, God doesn't just lose his temper like that. Which means that what happened, because the Lord's anger did burn against Uzzah, what what happened here, there must be more going on than, than initially meets the eye. And of course there is. That God's anger was kindled long before this exact moment. See in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, God gives very specific rules concerning the ark. In particular, it gives very specific rules concerning how the ark was to be transported because the Israelites in that day, they were a nomadic people. They worshiped in what was called the tabernacle, which is basically like portable church, portable temple. And they were constantly moving. And God said, when you move and it comes to moving the ark, there are some very, very specific rules you need to follow. Number one, you don't touch the ark. That's the biggest and most important rule. Number two, the ark, when it's moved, it needs to be covered. I don't want it to be a spectacle for people to ooh and ah at. Number three, it needs to be put on a cart, or it needs to be carried, not put on a cart. And then number four, it needs to be carried in particular by Levites, people who have devoted their lives to this task. And what we see here in 2 Samuel 6 is that every single rule God gave concerning the ark was broken. It was put on a cart, 
which was something that the Israelites learned from the Philistines. That's how they dealt with the ark. It wasn't covered. So it wasn't covered, wasn't carried. And the people who did carry it weren't Levites. First Chronicles 15 tells us that, that they shouldn't even be touching the thing, Uzzah and Ahio. And then lastly, the biggest rule, that when the oxen stumbled, Uzzah reached out and touched it. Every rule was broken. Everything that God said don't do, they did. And so the question is, okay, well, what's the lesson? And I've been scratching my head about that one all week. So what's the lesson? And what a lot of preachers say is the moral of the story is obey God or die. (laughs) If you break God's rules, he will strike you down. And there is some truth to that, but I think that's wholly incomplete. And I don't think that's the main lesson of this, this text and this narrative, because it's not like Uzzah was the only guilty one here. It wasn't Uzzah's idea to put the ark on the cart. And common sense says he probably wasn't the only one to touch it. How'd they get it on the ark? He couldn't pick the thing up by himself. So a couple of people are at least putting it on the ark. Everyone kind of had a hand and everyone was watching what was going on. No one stepped in and said, we need to stop this. Everyone's hands were dirty in this fiasco, especially David's. Because David's the one who, you know, called this thing to order and said, I want you to go and do this. He was in charge and it all happened under his watch. Everyone's hands were dirty. See, the real shock of this text is not that Uzzah was struck down, it was that everyone else was spared because they all deserved judgment. Furthermore, Uzzah, he wasn't struck down the minute he disobeyed. He was struck down after repeated acts of disobedience. What Eugene Peterson and and his book, Leap Over the Wall on the Life of David, says is that, that what happened here with Uzzah, it was an extreme measure by God that God used to wake his people up, to tell them, if you're going to approach me in this way, it's going to kill you. And to approach me in a trivial way is lethal. You know, when we look at the laws, like those four laws I just shared I think we're often tempted to think, gosh, those laws are so strange and they're so detailed, like God's very rigorous and uptight and demanding and almost overbearing. Like we don't get it. We don't understand why would God give all of these laws? And I'll tell you, if you press into any one particular law without keeping the whole in mind, they can be quite confusing. Why does God care if my shirt is made of polyester and cotton? Doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But when you zoom out at the whole law, you realize, and God actually alludes to this multiple places in the Old Testament, that the laws that God gave, he gave to remind the Israelites, and he also gave to show the watching world something concrete about who he is and about how, he's, how he is to be approached. That the laws aren't arbitrary, they're there to teach us something. And so when God says, I want you to cover the ark, he's saying, listen, I'm not a spectacle, spectacle just to be watched. I'm ultimately a person that I want you to relate to. Don't trot me out as just some kind of, uh, you know, attraction for rubberneckers. When he says, I want you to carry the ark, I don't want you to put it on a cart. What he's saying is I'm a relational God. Don't, don't put me on a machine. Yeah, it's going to be heavy, but I want to walk with you and I want you to walk with me. And when God says, do, do not touch the ark, what he is saying, saying something critical about himself and about us. He's saying, I am holy and you're not. I am holy, and you are sinful. 
But where he put the ark, it shows that God is holy and he's near. You know, it was in the tabernacle, it's right in the middle of the camp. So you could get really close, but you could never get all the way in with him. Because he's trying to say, I am holy and you're not, you're sinful. And trying to understand the holiness of God is very challenging for us because, because we're not holy. Trying to understand what it means that God has no evil or wickedness or darkness or sin within within him is very, very hard for us because we all have evil and sin and wickedness and darkness within us. But God gives these rules trying to help us, saying, if you're going to approach me, here's how you have to do it. He's trying to show us something about ultimate reality. Therefore, when the rules are broken, it's not just you broke the rule, bam. If the rules are broken, ultimately the message is broken. The message is lost. And this whole thing of the ark, it just turns into this religious ritual without meaning. So God gives these laws, and and at the heart of all the laws are, he is holy and we are sinful. And I know we live in a culture that doesn't like to talk about sin. I mean, we like to call people that we totally disagree with. That's one of the worst things we can say. Like, they're sinners. We don't don't like the word. Something about it, it agitates us. It's, It's insulting or it's uncomfortable, something about it. So we just try to avoid it. And so we use other words, words like brokenness or dysfunction or all sorts of other things. But when it comes to sin, we want to avoid it. We don't want to talk about it and we don't want to think about it. And I would say that Uzzah's greatest sin, his greatest fault or brokenness or whatever, it was a fundamental lack of understanding of his own sin. That was his greatest mistake. Think about why did Uzzah touch the ark after God had explicitly and repeatedly said, do not touch this? Why did he touch the ark? Answer, he didn't want to touch the soil. He didn't want to get in the dirt, right? He didn't want, he thought if the ark slides off the cart and goes into the dirt, it's going to be defiled. You know, it's going to come into contact with something that will defile it, something dirty, And so instead, he reaches out his hand and tries to stop it. That's very bad theology. Because in his mind, he's saying the soil is dirty, but I'm not. Think about soil for a minute. Think about it biblically and theologically. Soil is an amazing thing. Started planting some stuff this year and growing. It's amazing. You put this thing in and then plants come out of it. It's, It's incredible. And you know what? Soil's not fallen. Soil doesn't rebel against God. Soil's never turned its back against God or to God. There's nothing wrong with it. It's everything it was created to be. You and I, however, we're nowhere near what God created us to be. We're angry. We're petty. We're selfish. We're greedy. We're resentful, we're lustful, and we're self-centered. We just obsess over our own lives and don't, don't care about other people. We're nowhere near where we're created to be. We are defiled. But so often in life, we think, well, the dirt's going to get, you know, that, that's what's going to defile God. We never realize, no, it's our hands. If our hands were to be laid upon the ark, it would defile And that's why God said there are very clear rules. 
We can't just stroll into God's presence. That's really the lesson of Uzzah. We can't approach God any way we see fit. And I would say this is a real word for us in our day and in our culture. Because in our day and our culture, people like to talk about spiritual things and people like to talk about God, but the way they talk about God to me is ridiculous. It's utterly ridiculous. People will say things. I like to think of God like this. As if God were a blank canvas that you could, you know, paint anything you want on. How would you like it if someone said, to, said that to you? I like to think of Kevin as this person who gives all of his money away, so he's going to go take it. You know, you, you don't get to define reality. And so what happens is we say, well, I like to think of God like, and I like to think of God like this. And what ends up happening, this is another phrase from Eugene Peterson that I love, is we reduce God down to just a blurred glow of sentiment where there's no defining lines of who he is. It's glowing and it's warm, makes us feel good. But it's not the true God. It's not the real God. God is God and there are contours to him. There are things he is and there are things he is not. One of the things he is is holy. And if we're going to come to him, we got to come to him on his terms. We got to acknowledge our sin and then we come on his terms, not on our terms, not any way we want. And this is hard. And when we hear about the holiness of God, we hear about our sin, we think about guilt, it leads to a couple of things regularly. It makes us angry and it makes us afraid. And usually the anger transforms into fear or the anger is actually born out of the fear. I just want to say, if you're angry or afraid when I talk about this stuff, you're in good company because so is David. After God, you know, struck down Uzzah, verse 8, we're told David was angry at the Lord. He was angry. And then I think the anger dissipated, but the fear remained that, that drove that anger. Because in verse 9, David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? So David's in this moment, the thing that he desperately needs, the presence of God in his life, the presence that he was created for, he looks at just what, what just happened. He said, how in the world am I ever going to get before God's presence? <laughs> do I have to follow every rule perfectly? Because if I do, I don't even know if I want to try because I might mess up and I don't want to get zapped like Uzzah. And so you can get the sense of David's despair in verse 10. And verse 10 is funny. I think, I think it's a really funny verse because we're told in verse 10 that David, he was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Now, the reason this is funny, imagine the scene. Uzzah's died. He's laying there on the ground. Everyone's staring at the ark. Guy's like, so what do you want us to do? Should we pick it back up, put it back on the, take it to, take it to Jerusalem. David's like, no way. I don't want anything to do with it. All the other Israelites, we don't want anything to do with it. And nearby lived this guy, Obed-Edom, the Gittite. He's a foreigner and he's an outsider. He's a guy with no power, no influence, no nothing. And so they look at each other and are like, I think he needs to take one for the team. Give it to Obed. He didn't want it. He probably fought against it. And so they take it to his house But people don't get tumors. No one dies. 
Instead, there's just blessing on Obed and his family. We read in verse 11, the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months, and the Lord blessed him and in his entire, in his entire household. We don't know what all of that blessing entailed, but it's things like the harvest came in and it was strong. And the sickness and ailments that were affecting his, families, they went, his family, they went away. Maybe their businesses took off. Maybe the conflict that was in their life that went away. All we know is that Obed-Edom, who didn't want anything to do with this thing, it gets brought into his house and it blesses him. And this teaches us something important about God, that even though God is holy, and even though we are to rightly fear him, God is also gracious and he's good. And those two things are not, you know, at war with one another. Ultimately, what we see throughout the scriptures is that God's desire is to bless and not curse. God will curse, but his desire is to bless. God will judge, but his desire is to save. When you get to God's heart, God is not a cold judge who's sitting back saying, I could go either way on all y'all. Show me what you got. What we see in the scriptures is God longing, leaning forward, calling out again and again in a thousand different ways saying, I want to save you. I want to rescue you. I want you to know me. This is what he's doing here. I want you to draw near to me. I mean, this is the entire reason God commanded that the ark be created in the first place. I want you to have relationship with me. And so he blesses Obed and word gets to David and David something clicks. And he went down and he brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And I don't know what happened for David during those three months that the ark was, you know, in old Obed's house. What I, what I do know is that, what I'm confident of is that David went back to God's word. That after the initial shock wore off, David went back and said, let's crack this thing open once again. What, what, what went wrong? And the reason I'm confident of this is because both here and First Chronicles also tells us this story. Both places were told that when he comes to get the ark, they don't throw it on a cart anymore. The people carrying it, the people who are carrying it are Levites. And so David, he's obviously read like, okay, these are the instructions, but it's deeper than that. It's not just that David is saying, okay, I'm gonna follow all the rules and then God's gonna bless me. Because we're also told in verse 13 that right after they get it, when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he, David, sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Now, this didn't happen the last time around. David wasn't sacrificing anything. And the commentators, they, they disagree on this, but there's some who would argue that the entire journey from Obed's house all the way to Jerusalem, every six steps, David said, all right, everyone, stop. Bring the bull, bring the fattened calf, and we're going to slaughter it. Where'd David get this idea? He got it from the book. He got it from God's instructions. See, God's instructions, they don't just teach us something about who God is and who we are. They also teach us something about how God's going to save the world. And if you go to the book of Exodus... What you'll see, you read about the laws of the ark and God's design for worship, you'll see that, well, yes, the law of God, it's in the ark. And in that sense, the law represents the holiness of God. And 
the ark in some ways condemns us because of our sin, because the Ten Commandments are in there. At the ark, you also see God's gracious provision for us. Where is that? It's the mercy seat. It's that gold slab with the two angels where God would appear between. And what we're told in Exodus and other places in the Old Testament is that once a year, the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. He could get before the ark and encounter God's presence, but to do so, a sacrifice had to be made. Blood had to be shed. And then the priest would go in with his blood and he would sprinkle it on the top of the ark. He essentially would cover the damning power of the law with the blood of a sacrifice. He'd be shielded from the power of the law to condemn, to judge with the blood of a sacrifice. So David sees this and something clicks for him. And he rejoices. And he says, wait a second. Yes, God is holy, but God is also gracious and God provides us a way to enter into his holiness. You see, the problem when we recreate God in our own image that he's just warm and fuzzy, we deny who he is, but we also deny the power that he has. Like his holiness is his beauty. The reason God has so much weight, the reason his presence is so brilliant is because he is holy. And when we try to get rid of that, we neuter God and we turn him into something we can understand. And then we go to him and we wonder why we don't have any power. Because we're going to a God that we've neutered. We're going to a God you know, that we've watered down. So we don't want to go that route. But if you say, well, God is just holy, then you feel like, well, gosh, what can I ever do? How can the ark ever come to me? How can I ever experience his presence? That's the big question of the Bible. And the answer, the big answer, it's right here. You can come to him through the blood of a sacrifice. God doesn't want us to be cut off. He doesn't want us to live alienated from him. And what David knew in part, we know in whole. That all these laws, all these instructions... All these things of the sacrifice, they pointed us forward to Jesus. In Hebrews 10, the author of Hebrews says this, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, what the author of Hebrews is saying here is not that God was tricking people in, the, you know, in David's time, like they think they're doing something, but they're not. What he is saying is, no, 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 that was all foreshadow. That wasn't actually going to deal with the problem of our sin. Then the author of Hebrews goes on and says, therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, this is Jesus speaking, he's talking to the Lord, to, to the Father, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. Points to his own body. Then I said, this is Jesus again, here I am, it is written about me in the scroll, I have come to do your will, O God. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That we can encounter God in his fullness and in his glory, and his weightiness because of the blood of a sacrifice. And yes, when we think of sacrifices and animal sacrifices, you think that's ugly and gross and that's kind of the point. But it's also beautiful and when we think of the cross, it's ugly and gross in so many ways. I watched The Passion of the Christ one time. 
couldn't watch it again. It's too ugly, too gross, too brutal. And yet at the same time, the cross is beautiful. Because it shows us, one, God doesn't sweep sin under the rug. God doesn't say, you know what, none of this really matters. Who cares? God doesn't deny who he is in his holiness. But in another sense, it's beautiful because it shows that he's gracious as well. And some of you are thinking, yeah, I get this. Yeah, I get this. Yeah, I get this. You want to know how you get this? Look at David. Because he didn't get all of this. And look at what happens to him when it clicks. When David understands the grace of God, and I've been studying David's life for a year now, it utterly changes him. It changes him to the core. And we see a joy and a vibrancy and a vitality in David like I've never, you, you never see before this point. We're told in verse 14 that David, wearing a linen ephod, which was a priestly garment. Some people say David was naked in this text. He wasn't naked. He was just kind of in his underwear, right? It's a tunic that, that was kind of like a dress that went to here. So he's kind of naked uh, because we're also told that he was dancing you know, uh, with a whole lot of vigor, you know, his legs are flying up in the air and everything else. And so in some sense, like, yeah, he's kind of naked. Um, but the ephod, that's what a priest would wear. And David's saying something about what he's doing here with the sacrifice, because he's the one who made the sacrifice. And we're saying that in the ephod, that he's danced before the Lord with all his might, while he and the entire house of Israel Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and sounds of trumpets. So he's going crazy. I don't know what it looks like to dance with all your might. Let me think about that. What does that mean? Like how violent of a dance, how strong. He danced with all of his might in the ephod, music's blaring. And then we're told in verse 20, and we the passage we read alluded to this, but here's how the chapter ends, that his wife, Michael is not happy. And his wife says with just the most sneering sarcasm, oh, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. What she's saying is, David, you're supposed to be king. Act like it. How undignified of you. Walking around in your underwear, dancing like that before the slave girls. What are you doing? And David responds, it wasn't before the slave girls, verse 21, it was before the Lord. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. I'll be humiliated in my own eyes. What David's saying here is I was dancing before God, not anyone else. And you know what? You might think less of me. Other people might think less of me. I don't care humiliate me. Why? Because I have the favor of God. Because I have the favor of God, I don't, I don't really care what other people think of me. But in a sense, he doesn't even seem to care what, what he thinks of himself because he knows that that's not ultimately what matters. What matters is, is what God declares. And what we see in David when he understands the sacrifice that takes away sin, he has this peace and he also has this joy and I would say there is an utter joy that comes from knowing the, the grace of God that makes you forget yourself. There is an utter joy that comes from the grace of God that actually leads to self-forgetfulness. And here's what I want to close with. Because the American culture, church culture, is filled with a whole lot of what I would call religion, which is antithetical to the gospel. 
And there's a lot of ways to tell the difference between, well, am I following some kind of religion or, or do I understand the gospel? Religion leads to self-obsession. Religion leads to constantly looking, am I doing this well enough? Am I doing this good enough? Am I doing this fast enough? Or, or you know, am I getting it right with my life? And it's oppressive. It's oppressive to you. This constant, don't get me wrong, there's a place for self-examination. I'm talking about self-obsession. And you know the difference. And this self-obsession, it's oppressive. It's oppressive to you. You live your entire life hunched over, feeling guilty, feeling miserable. And you also tend to become oppressive towards other people because you want to show them all the ways that they're doing it wrong as well. And it doesn't lead to joy or peace or hope or life. It leads you to become like Michael, right? Oh, look at you dancing around. Gospel, on the other hand, leads to a place of absolute self-forgetfulness. You just don't care what people think because you've got the approval of the king. And so you're going to offer him your best. You're going to offer him your joy because he saved you. And when I look at us as a church, like David, he was dancing like this and he only saw a part. We see the whole, we should be dancing, folks. There should be a joy in our life that transcends our circumstances, transcends hardships. And I'm not saying that the pain isn't real. What I'm saying is that the joy goes deeper than the pain. As we're thinking about that, we're going to come to the Lord's table. This is a visible reminder. It's a, it's a reminder you can touch. It's tangible of the sacrifice, the final sacrifice. Jesus Christ's body broken for us and his blood shed for us so that we who are far, we who can never get in, we could get before the presence of God because of what Jesus has done. That's why we call this communion. We can draw near to the presence of God. Communion is a time we remember that Jesus didn't just die to save us. He also died and then he gave us his spirit so we can experience the presence of God in our life now. And there are things you can do that can grieve the spirit or quench the spirit, but you have the power of God dwelling within you right now. Are you attentive to it? Are you seeking it? Communion's a time where you can say, no, I'm not, and that's okay. There's grace. But it's also a time you can say, Lord, I seek your face. That's the one thing I want. And so if you're here and you're a Christian, I encourage you to use this time well, to seek God's face. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I want you to hear me that God is holy and you, just like everyone else here, are sinful and judgment is coming, but God has made a provision for you. Don't deny the provision. Give your heart, your faith, and your life to Jesus. Let me pray.